Greetings, everyone. This is Andy hopping on here before today's regularly scheduled pre-taped episode with some special news that broke after we recorded this episode. Donald Trump indicted again, number four, this time in Georgia. I know, right? Crazy. Another Trump indictment? Who knew? Apologies, by the way, for the inferior audio quality. I'm recording this in my remote studio, which happens to be my car. Because the very hardworking, very dedicated backroom team is still on its much-needed little August vacation break. We won't be taping new episodes in the studio until the last week of the month. Until then, we will continue to post pre-recorded episodes. But I'm telling you, man, when we get back in that studio, be there because it's going to be crazy. I am like a volcano. I am walking the streets like Mount St. Trump waiting to erupt. So be there for the eruption. It's going to be wild. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's a really fascinating interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Today's guest is Anthony DiMaria. He is the nephew of Jay Sebring, who was one of the victims in the Manson murders in 1969. This is a fascinating conversation, and we will bring out Anthony in a second. But first, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, and we'll read a few next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe to be notified every time we post a new episode. Okay, Anthony DiMaria. He is an actor director, and producer. His New York theater affiliations include Circle Rep Lab, Actor Studio, and The Barrow Group. His recent film and TV credits are Woody Allen's Cafe Society, Ray Donovan, The Leftovers, John from Cincinnati, Deadwood, Disney's Pixel Perfect, CSI, and The Sopranos. In 2020, he directed and produced the feature-length documentary Jay Sebring, Cutting to the Truth, about his uncle, who was murdered in the notorious Manson family murders in August of 1969. He is currently writing a book with biographer Marshall Terrell on his uncle's life, legacy, and the distortion fallout perpetuated after his murder and the killings of all 10 Manson murder victims. Anthony, welcome into the back room. Hi, Andy. Happy to be here. Thank you. So there's so many um, layers to you and your story, and I'm really interested to dive into that with you. I think the first and most important thing in a contextual sense to start off with is the recent news of Leslie Van Houten's release. She was one of the Manson girls, as they say. I like to call them the Manson murderers. She served about 54 years in prison. There were multiple parole hearings over the years. I think a total of about 125 for the whole Manson family. And uh, recently she was released because of court activity. There was an overturning of some rulings by the appeals court. And to make a long story short, Governor Gavin Newsom just came to a point where he said, I can't fight this. I'm not going to win. I'd like to keep her in prison, but I can't. And he gave up the fight and she was released. As you know, my late wife, Adrienne Shelley, who was an actor and filmmaker, she was murdered. So I bring an interesting perspective to this whole conversation, which I think is important to just put out there at the beginning. So I want to ask you, because I don't know how I would feel, but I want to ask you your thoughts on her release. 
You know, I appreciate everything that you just said. First of all, I met Adrian many years ago when uh, before the uh, the casting of Grime, and mm-hmm. believe it or not, uh, I was cast in it, and Adrian was. And then they got new producers; they wanted to recast. They brought in another actor and myself to read, and Billy Crudup got the part, and mm-hmm. he's a hell of an actor. And of course, Adrian is, and what an extraordinary spirit artist and soul. And so my thoughts go to you with what you've endured and your family. And I I really appreciate the fact that you address Leslie Van Houten as a Manson killer, as opposed to a Manson girl or a Manson follower, as she's so often described in in, in the media, because it diminishes who she is and, and what she actually did, the nature of her crimes. With her release, it was very very difficult. And I had been to six of her last parole hearings as a a LaBianca family representative. I've heard what she said in these parole hearings. And she shows a tremendous extensive pattern of lack of insight into her crimes. So in addition to the extreme nature of her crimes, it was very concerning that, as you had said, and aptly so, that Governor Newsom kind of gave up the fight. Because I'm certain that if brought in with the profound nature of Leslie Van Houten's crimes, uh, the historical repercussions of them on American society, specific to Lawrence, which is a law that would establish that in certain rare cases, the extreme nature, egregious, severe nature of the crimes alone is enough to deny parole, regardless of any rehabilitation uh, at time served as well. And then there's Chaputis that says if, if there is a lack of insight uh, exhibited by the inmate that a nexus of current dangerousness is established. So I think on legal grounds, uh, it would have been one based on uh, concrete evidence in what Leslie had been saying all these years throughout her parole hearings. And I I shared that with the governor's office and the attorney general. And I have to say, uh, though I vehemently, strongly in our families, all of our families disagreed with the decision not to appeal, his office, and uh, the attorney general, they did, they were very generous with their time in the weeks leading up to, with directly in phone conversations with me. And I appreciate that. You know, I'm 63, so I've been around a long time and had a lot of time over the years to not just understand these murders, but to think about them and the historic repercussions that you mentioned on society. You know, we always glorify and romanticize the 60s. And in many ways, these crimes kind of put an end to that. And when you think about what those crimes were and the impact that they had on society and the savagery and the butchery, it takes you to that question that we all struggle with, which is our penal system and rehabilitation and parole and all of that. And it's interesting when you come at it from the perspective of just an average citizen. And then it's another perspective when when you in your family, in your life have experienced that. Opinions tend to differ. I come at it like, you know, she stabbed someone 16 times in the back, right? Whether Rosemary LaBianca was dead or not when she did it, it doesn't matter. But in a way, if you do that to a dead person, that makes what you've done even more ghoulish, regardless of whether you were told to do it or not. So I personally bring the opinion of you do that, you, you do the time, like you took a life, you need to somehow pay that back in a way that doesn't allow you to end up a free person one day. It just doesn't seem 
just. Now, I know a lot of people disagree with me, and there are a lot of people that are like, oh, she spent a long time in prison, but she took a life. I don't believe in the death penalty. <clears throat> I used to, because I do believe people are there wrongly accused. But I do believe if you do what she did, it should be a trade. You should have to give up your life. You know, and again, that's a very nuanced, complex, great question. And it's, I think that redemption, rehabilitation, uh, justice, these are all crucial parts of our judicial and, and justice system. And I think that each case, the people have a tendency to just kind of have a general opinion and they stand by it. And I think that's part of something that not only in, in this particular uh, subject that you're asking, that even politically or generally, people just say, I'm for this or I'm for that. Mm -hmm. And there's no nuance. There's no embracing kind of looking at each case uh, individually. And I think when we look at this case, it is so severe and it's had such a profound impact on society. That's undeniable. I mean, you can go on the internet and get Leslie Van Houten, Charlie's Angel shirts. And there's a, there's people with, you know, Leslie Van Houten tattoos and, and, I mean, and she's had, did a book and it was turned into a movie, you know? So there is a fascination and that comes into play. And so I really appreciate that, that, you know, I, I believe in the death penalty. And I also believe if each state doesn't have it, that's fine. You know, I, I believe the states determine that. Uh, I also feel that there needs to be a, a very definitive DNA. You know, it has to be very compelling proof. So it's a very complex issue. Uh, I would be happy with just life without possibility of parole. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened when the death penalties were revoked. Right. The next most severe was life with possibility. And that's what led to this. So um, I spoke to somebody and he was a friend and we said, you know, Anthony, what's the point of keeping her in prison all this time? And he, we, we're, a very, we're good friends, so he can talk candidly with me. And I don't take personal people's opinions. Uh, so he said, you know, she spent all this time in prison, 53 years, and it's all this money and blah, blah, blah. So I described what she did. And then I described the butcher knife and the carving core and the word war carved in the abdomen of Lino. And people will say, well, she only killed Rosemary. No, she was convicted of killing two people. And when she held Rosemary hostage, and restrained her arms, she was just as complicit in, in that murder. That's just as fatal as plunging a butcher knife through the thorax of Lino LaBianca. And, you know, these are real things. And when I started to tell him the details of the crime, he started wincing. And he said, you know what, Anthony, I don't need to hear this. And I respectfully didn't continue, but I kind of wanted to say, you know, you have a, a kind of cavalier attitude in all this. And so when faced with the actual gruesome facts, he couldn't take it. He, he asked me to stop talking about it. And people, well, she spent 53 years in prison. Well, I would posit, I would take 53 years in prison over 54 years in a coffin and eternity in a coffin. And that's beyond how horribly they suffered in the last moments of their lives. Yeah. You know, Adrian was 40 when she was murdered and her killer will be 40 something when he's released a free man to live the rest of his life. And she suffered a horrible, brutal death. And that's why I say, like, people who haven't had that in their family have a different perspective. And your friend is a perfect example of, I guarantee if something happened to somebody, God forbid, in his family, his perspective would probably change. And the way you can look at the Van Houten situation 
is to say, instead of saying she's spent 53 years, she should spend 100 years, right? It should have been 100. 53 is not the default. The default should have been life. And so when someone says she spent 53 years in prison, it's really implying like, oh, that's more than she should have. She deserves to be out. Why does she deserve to be out? People will say, oh, she was 19. She was on drugs. She was this. She was that. Came from a broken home, blah, 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 whatever, whatever the excuse was. <clears throat> so yeah. that person who is capable of being mind controlled that way, can we say with absolute certainty that if this woman was put in some kind of complicated situation today where she got angry or frustrated or disillusioned and someone else came along? that she wouldn't do something else. I can't say that that wouldn't happen because to me, there's a predisposition there. And to say she was 19 or this and that, that's just excuses. So you were little, you were like three or four years old when your uncle Jay died. Exactly. I was three years old and uh, I was born in Las Vegas and my parents moved there in 65 from Detroit. And so uh, Jay would come out and visit our family, uh, you know, from time to time. He, he did a lot of work at the Sands on Jack and Trotter, the director of entertainment, and also the entire rap back, you know. So he was, he was working and commuting, going back and forth. As a matter of fact, when my mother was pregnant with me, uh, Jay and Sharon were engaged and they came to the house and Sharon, my mom was expecting. So Sharon bought her a beautiful like poncho that was comfortable. And, mm -hmm. but to your question, I remember. Anyone who knew Jay, he was dynamic. He had a charisma that even people as charismatic as McQueen and Newman and Sinatra, that they gravitated towards him on a level that was not just uh, like a, a person performing a, a service for them. He became their friends and, you know, they wanted to invest in his business. So my memories with him, for some people who might think, wow, he was three, are very indelible. And, um... He had that impact on me as he did with everyone. And when I saw this black and white photo of my uncle, I asked my mother, I said, hey, mom, when am I going to see him again? And uh, she said, because I saw a look in her eyes that no kid should ever see their mother. It was a vulnerability and a pain that I caused her. And I thought, shit. What did I do to my mom? And I, I just associated, just even bringing up my uncle, Jay, did that to my mother. So she said to me, well, you can't see him. He's in heaven. And I didn't understand all that stuff. And she walked away. She wasn't crying, but it was something that just, just to the core. And again, these are different things mm -hmm. that reinforce memories, especially when a private personal tragedy is played out on the global stage as some form of dramatic narrative or entertainment, mm -hmm. or in this, this case, a morality tale. Mm -hmm. And so, so it was constantly reinforced in my life. So I went on a journey to know everything I could without asking my grandparents or my mother, cause I didn't want to hurt them. Mm -hmm. And I started reading everything I could. And I started to read things that were very disturbing to me that were written about Jay after he was killed, not while he was alive. And that was the beginning of me saying, I need to know the truth, even if I'm, uh, and I had to prepare myself, even if I didn't like what the truth was. Well, it's interesting. Anyone who says you can't remember shit when you're three or four, I could tell you that when I was four years old, I could see my mother opening the door to our apartment, me asking her, is my show going to be on? And she said, no, it's not. And, and it was because 
Kennedy was assassinated. And that's a memory I'll never forget. And I think horror and tragedy has a way of making that shit just cemented in your brain forever. One of the things you and I have in common is that we, you made a documentary about your uncle. It came out in 2020, I believe. And it's called J.C. Bring Cutting to the Truth. And I have to confess, I had no clue who your uncle was. As many times as I heard the name J.C. Bring, J.C., I had no fucking idea who he was. And I was blown away when I saw your film. Because that's exactly why I guess you made that film. Because that's why I made my film about Adrian to make people know who she was so that she wasn't just a murder victim. And, and I feel bad that for all of these years, I just thought of your uncle as a murder victim until I, saw, yeah. until I saw the film and understood what a fucking stud he was, what an incredibly brilliant entrepreneur he was, the influence that he had on people, how he changed the whole concept of hair design for men and the industry, the $20 billion industry has become. But just that essence that you've talked about, the charisma, the imprint that he left on people, you did a fantastic job conveying that through your film so that people who watch it will walk away knowing who J.C. Bring was. And murder victim is the last thing on the list of things that he was. So I commend you for that. Well, and I saw your film and I thought beautifully done. And as you know, there's something to be said. I mean, th th these are like life mission endeavors. You know, w when I read that Jay was a drug addict and a drug dealer, I was like, how can that be? You know, um, I read in time magazine that he was racist. That's not in our family. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why? So I had to know the truth. And then when I saw that his shop was not only his clients, but his staff was completely integrated, um, all kinds of people. When I saw the autopsy, that there was no drugs in his system, even though, like everybody in the 60s, you know, he enjoyed recreational drug use without a doubt. But but he wasn't some of these things. And I thought, I need to know what Jay did in the last moments of his life. And as I got to know the DAs in over two dozen parole hearings over several decades, I became friendly with them. And I really appreciated them. And I was able to look through the testimony. And I found out a story that Bugliosi didn't put in his book. And I thought, holy shit, Jay charged Watson when he had his back turned to him with a gun and a bayonet. I was like, why in the hell didn't you put that in your book? And I wanted to ask Bugliosi, you had all these character descriptions of Jay as being insecure and all these things. And you sweep under the rug that he charged a man and tried to protect himself and his friends. So these were all red flags that I thought, not only is this not adding up what's written about the J.C. being portrayed after death, it, it certainly wasn't anything of the man who lived. And I learned that, as you well know, another universal relevance in this story is the media. And I don't want to disparage the media overall, but what is it about some facets of exploitative, sensationalistic media, which unfortunately is a very significant portion? that wants to shape these things in a narrative that they feel is conducive for packaging and selling shit for consumption. And if you do that, it can't be hot and steaming. It has to be, hmm, smells good, looks good. And then the consumers can say, ooh, I want that. And so if you have beautiful, successful people stricken down in their prime, you know, it, we can make them a little lurid and a little complicit into their own demise. So they deserved it. They had it coming. And to your point, 
and this is no disparagement on Sharon, but Jay was, as you said, very well known in the most elite and powerful circles. So in his own way, he really was much more established in Hollywood and in society than Sharon was. And that's not a comparison. It's just contextual. I mean, he was approximately 10 years older than her. Sharon was on the verge of getting her big break. She wasn't known like an Elkie Summer or, you know, some of the other actresses of the time, Julie Christie, but she certainly had her potential and was beautiful. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? But I'm just this context in that. Yeah, I think you're raising a really interesting point. When you look at the Manson case, there was a long delay between the murders and the arrests. And in between, that leaves the media with this story, and they don't want it to die. So they start to hypothesize, oh, it must have been drugs or a bad drug deal. Jay Sebring was involved with this one or that one, or it's there was orgies, which, by the way, even if all of that shit was true, we're talking about 1969, right? What, drugs, orgies? Get out, you know? Like, it wasn't so weird back then. There were movies like Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice with major stars from major studios, right, about wife swapping and shit. That was just, that was the culture then. What got me about your documentary and what I didn't really understand till then was not just that, you know, people called your uncle a freak, a weirdo, a pervert, a druggie. It was massive debt. It was a crime. They, they were coming after him because he owed money to people. Uh, he was racist, the thing you mentioned before. But what really pissed me off is when I heard the clip from Polanski, this little rapist, right, sitting there and disparaging your uncle as a fetishist. And look, my heart goes out to him. Whenever I see that clip of him speaking to the media and him breaking down about Sharon's murder. I was in his shoes, so I get that. But, and this is a big but, we now know a lot about Roman Polanski and how he was a pervert and didn't care about a 14-year-old girl. I mean, we know about one case. There's probably a million cases, okay? And so when I heard that clip, it really upset me because it kind of crystallized what must have gone on in that moment when the suspicion was being put on your uncle and there was nobody around to refute any of it. You know, it's right. You're, you're so apt in, in, in that. And, you know, I said to my father, when I started reading and, and doing investigations, I said, dad, I'm reading some really horrible shit about Uncle Jay and blah, 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 blah. And, and you know, I don't want to talk to mom about it. And he said, Anthony, uh, I was very close. I knew your uncle very well, but as a brother-in-law. He said, you know, things happen in Hollywood and, you know, maybe he did some of these things, but he says, I'll tell you one thing, Anthony, they didn't write that shit when he was alive. You're saying something really important. When your uncle was alive, he was famous. He was on game shows like, uh, what's that show? Uh, to tell the truth. To tell the truth. So he had a very prominent career. He was well known in Hollywood and it wasn't like he was just some hairdresser that nobody knew. He was pretty prominent at the time of his death. Oh, he launched Bruce Lee's entire film career. And Linda, his wife, even said that Jay was really his mentor into Hollywood style and how to look. If you look at the transition of Bruce Lee pre-Sebring and post, there's a massive difference. And that doesn't take anything away from Bruce. Jay opened the door and Bruce excelled in spade. But when you get into like some of the lurid details of Jay being kinky, um, it's interesting for such a guy that is such a creep as, as Bugliosi also, and he sure was in no shortage of beautiful women wanting to spend a lot of time with him. So whatever he was doing, it was 
it, it seemed to be working for him. You know, in terms of the debt, he was putting all his money back into his business to expand nationally. He created the first organic, complete hairline. He was paying chemists to do these things. And he introduced it eight, nine years before Vidal Sassoon did. So he was planning on expanding. So all these lurid things were coming up because it fit the narrative of this kind of guy who had a, a, a secret life that caused him to be killed. And I think what's interesting with Roman, he was being considered in that polygraph with the detectives. And Roman may or may not have known, but the detectives did know that a rope was over the beam tied from Jay's neck, which was tied around his neck after he was killed, and then to Sharon's neck. So when he started talking about the fetishist stuff, it's kind of interesting that suddenly there's these stories coming out in publications within two weeks after the murders. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, giving Roman an out, but maybe he was, oh shit, you know, I want these guys to know it wasn't me. But he, you're, you're right. He really was throwing Jay under the bus and he, he even threw Wojtek under the bus. You know, when I said earlier about the 60s ending with these crimes, I think, you know, the mood at the time, especially in LA, especially among the wealthy, especially among the Hollywood elite, life was pretty damn good in 69, right? It was party time. Then all of a sudden, six people. Five, was it five or six? Yeah, at the house, it was Stephen Parent and Abigail Folger, Wojtek Rakowski, Sharon, and Jay. But I always say in the parole hearings, six people, because under law at that time, they didn't include the baby, Sharon's baby, which right. is astounding to me. Right. And under today's law, that would have been a capital offense alone. So all three of them would have been put to death, you know, just because of that. Right. So you have these people partying in their house, having a nice time, and then there's gruesome brutality and murder. And it freaked people out. I guess no one would want to, I wouldn't want to believe that, oh my God, I could just be sitting in my house and this can happen to me now? You know, we got to find some answer that makes sense, that's going to make us feel safe. It's not like there are lunatics out there. It's because Jay owed a lot of money or this or that or whatever. And that's why it's so important that you made your film because even though it's decades later, it sets the record straight. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great point because there's a number of things on that. But I, I read everything I could. I did research at USC when I was going to school there. I, I just did everything. And then I was living in New York and a book came out, a great King book. And there was a whole chapter entitled Jay. And I read it. And again, it was just rehashing the entrenched rumors and mythology about Jay, that Jay was disinherited by his family, which is absurdity. So I read this and I thought, why are people just continuing to perpetuate these myths and these falsehoods and distortions? Well, a girlfriend of mine who was working at Condé Nest, and she said, Dominic Dunn's doing an article on your uncle in Vanity Fair, and it's coming out next month. And I said, no, you mean about the murders? And she said, no, it's really about your Uncle Jay. And I said, I want to see it now. So I shot over to Condé Nest and I read the article and I went, holy shit, this is somebody who knows the real story. So I was also close with a friend of mine and her parents were very close with Dominic Dunn. And I asked if I could contact him regarding the article. And I sent him a letter and he said that he was battling some cancer, unfortunately, but he said, I can refer you to my Beverly Hills barber, Jay's protege, Joe Tornueva. And so I started interviewing mm -hmm. and talking to people and taking notes. 
because I always wanted Jay's story to be told. I always wanted to just know the truth. And that was the seminal point where I just, I, I, I went full throttle. That's when I began my hard interview process, you know, meeting from Detroit, Beverly Hills, New York, all everywhere. How long did it take you <clears throat> to make the film? <laughs> well, it was genuinely independently produced. And Voss Beretta jumped on and he was at EP and Johnny Bishop, he was my editor and producer. And we were just scratching and, you know, borrowing cameras. And you can see in the film, the different formats and that was okay. And then uh, we ran into financial issues again and having a, a tough time. And then Chad Lane, unbelievable producer and friend, he jumped on and then things really started happening with Jeff Beal, the composer, and then Quentin Tarantino doing the interview. Our filming started in 2000, late seven, and it was released almost 13 years later. Mm -hmm. So it was a very grueling, frustrating, and sometimes devastating process. But I think in the end, it almost was a serendipitous, like it had its own life. But I guess the point is, is that even though it was this arduous process, this labor of love, that I was so blessed to have these three people fight like warriors with me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but I, I, I actually kind of was researching Jay's life, my entire life, if that makes sense. I decided that I was going to actually tell his story. I thought initially it was going to be a screenplay. And so I was doing it in that way. And then I asked, you know, in a nutshell, what is the point of this film? And it was to restore the face of a culturally, historically relevant individual whose legacy and identity was stolen from him in the sensationalism of his own slaughter. And I thought, who could play Jay? And then I thought, shit, man, you got Steve McQueen, Bruce Lee, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, the Rat Pack, Sharon Tate, Jane Fonda. I mean, you got all these people. And I thought, I don't want people being distracted with, is that supposed to be Frank? That guy doesn't look like Sinatra. And so then I decided I have this footage, this great footage of Jay. And I thought, whose face better to restore his face mm -hmm. than his own? And that's when I said, it's a documentary. So I'm listening to you talk and it's literally like just listening to myself when I went through my own process, mm -hmm. because, you know, a, a good documentary should answer a, a question that it asks, like, what's the point of the film? For me, it was, who is Adrian Shelley? What really happened November 1st, 2006? And how does a family navigate that kind of tragedy? And that's what you're saying was the point for you of making the film. I get asked this a lot, and I want to ask you, was it a cathartic process for you to make this film? Oh my gosh. It, it, yes, it was extremely cathartic on certain levels. To sit in a room with Quincy Jones and Dennis Hopper and Nancy Sinatra, people who inspired me as artists as I was growing up, people who shaped my passions about craft and storytelling, to see the love and the emotion that came from them. And I thought to myself, oh my God, what a privilege and an honor they shared the love that they held for Jay and the impact that he had on them in a way that they had on me. Mm -hmm. And again, I started to realize from their own words and their love that she really was this dynamic person mm -hmm. at a dynamic time amongst some of the most dynamic people in American culture. So it was cathartic to know Jay's story is now known. It is now out there. So yes, there was a, an element of catharsis in learning who Jay was and what he did. Even in the last horrific minutes of his life, even then, he lived with courage and grace and stood up to an evil. So part of that catharsis for me was knowing 
There is no doubt that that's what it was. My father said to me, you know, one of the wisest men I've ever met, street smart guy from Detroit, he says, let me tell you something about Jay. In 1960s, <clears throat> no one was bigger than Sinatra, McQueen, and Newman. He said, Jay was not only their go-to guy, but, you know, he was their inside friend. And he said, everybody wanted to be McQueen's friend. They wanted a piece of McQueen. He said, but you know who Steve McQueen was? Steve McQueen wanted to be Jay Sebring's best friend. But, you know, to have Jay's brother-in-law say it, people will question it because, oh, that's a family relative. Just like I'm sure with you, oh man, this guy is too close to Adrian's story. He shouldn't be directing it. And I, I would like to hear your thoughts on that because people said, I'm not so sure you should be the one directing this film. You know what I mean? You might be a little too. And so then in my research, I heard an audio tape in which Steve McQueen said, Jay Sebring was my best friend. So we knew right then that this was actual. This is what happened. Mm. I mean, did, did you get a lot of that? Yeah, you know, you, there's so much, that, again, that you just said that resonates with me. I don't think anyone else could have directed your film. Your film is about your journey to understand who your uncle was and to tell the truth about your uncle. And the spine, the through line of the film is you going on your own exploration. You know, the film really is about you literally walking through Jay's life. So I think it makes total sense to me why you would have been the director. But I, w I want to speak to something you talked about, because uh, in, in our society, we have a tendency to make a victim even more of a victim once they die. Just because either it sells papers or this or that, it just sounds salacious and interesting. And that happened with Adrian. You know, uh, unfortunately, her killer made up a story that she came downstairs and complained about noise and slapped him and called him a bitch. And I was like, I'm married to this woman. There's no way on earth that ever happened, ever. But it was so easy. People just like to have that kind of shit to talk about because they can't wrap their arms around the real story. Because the real story is really ugly and scary. It's like, wait, some amazing human being was just in her office and somebody comes in and kills them? I can't handle that. Some guy like Jay Sebring who's just having a nice, quiet night with friends gets killed in this big mansion in L.A.? I can't accept that. It's got to be something else. And that's when the chum goes into the shark tank and tries to destroy people's legacies in Jay's case, and especially with the suicide angle of Adrian's case. And I think people just need to stop doing that. They've already been victimized. Don't do it again. Um, as for me, I have a very same, you know, journey that, that you went on. And, and so <clears throat> I quickly realized that this is a story that I need to tell my way. Because of the reasons you described, I got to a point where I thought no one else can do it. And I would talk to filmmaker friends and lawyers, whoever in the business, and they would say, you're the only one that could do it because it would be some other movie. It's my story. It's like, how do you give that, put it in the hands of somebody else? And so I had a vision for it, just like you did. You clearly had such a clear vision. That's the way it was for me. Yeah, it really is amazing. That it's kind of almost symbiotic, our conversation and the way we're wired and how we think. And a lot of it has to do with the circumstances that have impacted us. And nothing was going to derail me. And clearly nothing was going to derail you from your mission for Adrian. And, and, you know, we trusted our own 
what we wanted, what we needed to do. It, it was beyond wanted, wanting to do. It's what we were compelled to do. In your film, there's a few scenes that I got pretty emotional watching because I thought they were incredibly poignant. One was with the bronze shoes. Well, he, you know, he landed in Los Angeles in 55. Mm -hmm. He did a four-year stint in the Navy. But he had these beaten-up shoes, and he brought a sleeping bag, and he had ideas and dreams, and that's all he had. And in the years, he cultivated them and got licensed and did his thing and opened his business, but he had these shoes that, that he kept with them. And my grandparents visited him and my grandmother said, what are you doing with these beat up nasty shoes? And Jay said, well, you know, these shoes are what I started with. And I'm going to bronze these shoes because I want to remember where I came from, how it all started and never forget and always appreciate you know, how hard it was, what I did. And so it was a trophy very sincere trophy of humility for Jay mm -hmm. and for success, mm -hmm. you know. Another scene which ties into what we were talking about, about vilification and the media, your grandmother, you said she never picked up another newspaper or magazine after, I think it was the Time Magazine story. My grandmother, you know, and my family, they picked up every newspaper, every magazine because they want, everybody was desperate for, the, for what happened. Who did this? And when my grandmother read those horrific things and saw on the news, even after the people were tried and saw the women laughing and singing and taunting, spitting, literally spitting on the memories of their own victims and taunting our families. And it was so horrific. And that was a part of a shock to the nation's conscience that these three women could behave so unspeakably. It horrified the nation. And it also impacted the country in its own way. But... My grandmother never again picked up a newspaper and didn't watch the news after that. But I will say to their credit, I've seen some different people impacted by trauma in some cases like these tragedies, and it can destroy you. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents and mother always instilled, Jay would never want us to be impacted and in pain, suffer any more than what is natural and experience that and then go out and live life with the passion and the zeal that he did and live life you know, to continue with that. The last subject I want to uh, just go through with you is something we touched on earlier, and that is the, just the whole fascination with this kind of thing, with, with Charles Manson in particular. Why do you think he has been so glorified over the years? You look at Guns N' Roses. I mean, I love Guns N' Roses. You, you kind of ruined it for me with your film, but in 1993 on their Spaghetti Incident album, I had no idea he fucking sings Charles Manson's song, Look at Your Game, Girl. This is not 70. This is 1993. Plenty of time for Axl Rose to know that that's a really douchey thing to do. So why do yeah. you think people... What makes women send letters to people like Charles Manson when he was in prison? What makes people marry Charles Manson? What is it about this disease that I guess some people have that they could look at evil and somehow see something that's sexy and cool. Well, you know, it, as you pointed out, Leslie Van Houten got married in prison. Susan Atkins got married in prison. Charles Watson got married in prison and fathered five children. I think five. It's sad to say there are certain things we just, in human nature, there's no describing how some people are wired, right? And with regard to not just Charles Manson, but also the so-called Manson family, there were so many elements because you have a time when America's in flux, 
right? You have the Eisenhower years, the kind of conventional lifestyles being challenged by the youth and the hippie movements. You have all these different things. You had the civil rights movements, but then the riots and this backdrop of conflict and movement. And so then you had these crimes that involved beautiful Hollywood people. And it was particularly brutal and gruesome. And you had unknown killers. So the speculation was off the charts. What I used to do was blame exploitative media for what they created in this. You know, they've shifted a narrative into something that it really wasn't, okay? And this was like the perfect storm of these decadent Hollywood types doing weird things. So they get slaughtered, as they should be. And then they find out, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 there was nothing, that had nothing to do with that. It, it was actually this hippie cult. So then they used that as the morality tale against being hippies. Right. And it was like, hey, don't let your kids be hippies because they'll be controlled and kill people. So this literally had all the ingredients of mass exploitation. And it was, it was great for, for book, TV, news, movie sales. Sex, and drugs, and rock and roll. That's right. If it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, don't let the facts get in the way of a great story. And that's what people were doing. I'm doing a book now with Marshall Terrell because in a book, you can tell more in more detail. So we're going to get into really extensively Jay's life and legacy and, and, and certainly the crimes. Anthony, you've been so generous with your time. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, certainly when you write a book, come back in and talk about that. I'm glad we got to know each other. Folks, if you want to see a great film about somebody whose story deserves to be told, Please see J.C. bring Cutting to the Truth. What's the best place for people to see it? Uh, it's Amazon, Apple TV, YouTube, Great. it's Google Play. It's yeah, all over. But Andy, thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor to be with you here today. So thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy, and it was co-produced and co-edited by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. We'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. Have a great week.